Welcome to Your Cyber Path, the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job by sharing the secrets of experienced hiring managers and top cybersecurity professionals with you. Now, on to the show. Hey, welcome to Your Cyber Path. I'm Kip Boyle. I'm here with Jason Dion. Jason, man, what have you been up to? Uh, what haven't I been up to? It's been uh, really, really busy recently. Uh, right now, I'm in the studio uh, this month, and I'm working really hard to get my new Penetration Tester Plus course uh, out and done in time for the uh, retirement of version one and the launch of version two. Uh, this course is really, really in-depth, and it's taking a lot of time because we're covering not just the theory, but we're also going and doing a lot of hands-on demos. So last mm -hmm. night I was in Recon NG showing how to do open-source reconnaissance and how to get intelligence and be able to collect that and all the things you can do with it. And it really just eats up a lot of time when you're trying to do this stuff because it takes a lot of time to use these tools. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I hope somewhere in there you're also getting our NIST cybersecurity uh, framework course, uh, you know, shoved out the door, right? It's almost done, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. So the NIST Cybersecurity Framework course, as we are talking and filming this right now, uh, it is actually about four days away from being finished with editing. Uh, then we've yes. got a couple of days of Q&A. And so uh, by early next week, uh, I expect that it will actually be live and ready to go on Udemy. Uh, if you want to get more information about that, it is at uh, yourcyberpath.com slash Udemy. We'll have a link to that Udemy course. Uh, and it's a great course on the NIST Cybersecurity Framework. We cover all about it. We talk about all the different pieces and parts of it. We show you how to use it. And even the last section of the course, Kip actually takes you through how he does this in his job at Cyber Risk Opportunities and kind of opens his playbook to you and shares it with you throughout this course. So it's, it's a really awesome, awesome course. And we're excited to have it out there. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. I have been getting ready for uh, a webcast or a hack and cast I'm going to do with Wild West Hacking Fest. We're going to talk about uh, how certifications can help hiring managers build the, 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 the team of their dreams. And along the way, I'm going to explain how job seekers can uh, take advantage of both traditional certifications as well as skills-based certifications to send really strong signals during the hiring process that you are somebody that uh, the hiring managers are going to want to look at. So anyway, so that's what I'm getting uh, ready for. I got a lot of training to do myself this year as well. So uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, totally a, a really important topic too, right? And I think the key there is you're talking to hiring managers, right? Mm -hmm. People always bring up this concept of this cert is better than that cert, or why doesn't people like this cert? Why do they like that cert better? Uh, I hear this a lot with CEH versus Pentest Plus versus OSCP, for example. And really it comes down to longevity in the marketplace and what hiring managers are used to because a lot of hiring managers and HR folks in particular aren't necessarily cybersecurity professionals even though they're doing the recruitment and hiring for those positions. Yeah. And so it takes you know people like you going out and talking to these other hiring managers and going, look, there is this skills-based training out there and you really should be looking at this instead of all this multiple choice stuff exactly. that's really easy just to study for and brain dump. So I really appreciate that you're going out there and doing that and I think that those conversations are what helps change the industry in five years, 10 years from now, and will make a difference. Um, but what we're going to look at today is what is the real world look like today? And that's really important to people who are looking for a job today because exactly. it does take time for those things to change. Exactly. So can we do a little programming note before we get going? If you're watching us uh, on the on uh, the Your Cyber Path channel on YouTube, you'll see that we're doing a screen share right now, right off the bat. And so that, you know, this is going to be uh, a session where we do that. But if you're just listening to us, don't worry, because Jason promised me that he's going to narrate <laughs> what, what he's doing on the screen share. So you're going to be able to benefit without having to take the extra step of watching the video. Is that right, Jason? 
Yeah, definitely. So if you're in your car listening to me on the uh, podcast right now, don't worry. I am really good at narrating step by step what you're going to see on the screen. That's why so he would close let me your do eyes it. and visualize it. But don't close your eyes because I want you to stay on the road. <laughs> um, but the idea is what we're going to be talking about today is geography and location and how that affects the cybersecurity industry and your chances of getting a job in the cybersecurity industry, especially with your first job. And so to help us with that discussion, I've brought up cyberseek.org, which is a website we've talked about before on the podcast. It's an excellent website with tons and tons of great information. Mm -hmm. It is updated in near real time, usually within about three months. Uh, it, get, it does a continual update of the site based on jobs, what employers are looking for, what the supply and demand curves look like, what the salary ranges are, what the certifications are, all that stuff. But today, we really want to focus on location because one of the things I've seen is that location really, really does matter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Kip, what do you think about location? Why does it matter so much? Yeah, well, location is kind of a, uh, a backward-looking thing in the sense that you know, in the last two years, we've all been uh, inundated with remote work and our workforces have gone uh, on their heads, you know, trying to uh, scramble out of, of, you know, big buildings and skyscrapers and stuff to guard against infection. But historically, uh, you know, people just went to a building. And so guess what? You got cities, bases, right? Air Force bases or Army bases or naval ports or whatever, right? Congre people congregate in order to go to work together. And so even though we still are, are, even though we're evolving, right, where we have all this tech that lets us do remote work, there still is this very pervasive attitude of location. And, uh, and, and you know, the, I don't know if that's ever going to go away. It certainly hasn't gone away completely, even with uh, remote work. So we've got to consider it. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, uh, I see this even in my company. Right now, my company is a remote-only company. All of my employees, we have 14 as of today, uh, as of yesterday, actually, the 14th member joined the team. Congratulations. And they're located all over the place, right? I am in, uh, we have people in one, two, three, four, five, six, six different countries right now out of 14 team members. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, though, next year, we are getting an office. Uh, and we are going to have people in the office. Now, I'm not going to fire those people who are not locally to our area, but as we are hiring for new positions throughout the rest of this year, we are hiring with a preference of we are going to be remote first company, but we still want you to be relatively close by so that once a week, once a month, we can get people together, we can do staff meetings, we can do outings, because that part of the culture gets lost in remote a lot of the time. And so it is something that you know I think is valuable as a, as a CEO and the leader of my company, and a lot of other companies do it that way as well. And so I've seen this trend, especially recently with the pandemic, where people say, oh yeah, it's a remote job, no problem at all, you can work from home. And then six months later, they're going, oh no, I want you back in the office on Monday. And if you took a job in California and you live in Virginia, you're not going to be there on Monday. It's kind of hard to move from California, you know, from Virginia to California in one day. So, <laughs> you know, it's important to understand that and put that out. And, you know, one of the people I just hired that's going to be starting in April, he lives in California. Um, you know, I'm down in Puerto Rico. We're also up at opening offices back in the States as well. And because of that, you know, I've told him, yes, you can work remotely, but over the next 12 months or so, um, you might be making a trip once every couple of months to come fly out and hang out with us. Uh, especially because he's going to be doing some filming and recording with me. It's a lot easier to have him in my studio where I can help him get his presence up, do all the technical stuff, and make sure it all works out right. Definitely. So anyway, there you go. I mean, there's, there's, there's Jason's perspective on, you know, geography and how that's affecting, you know, his company. And you know what, that's, that's true across the board. There are some companies that are not remote first, but remote exclusive, like my company is remote exclusive, right? So um, we, 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 don't, we don't get together in a physical space 
uh, and I don't have any plans for doing that. That works for us, right? But for a lot of other people, um, you know, geography does matter. So, all right. So that's that's why we're talking about this. And a couple of other things I think you should know before we uh, before we really crack into this. So again, we're focused on the United States, and that's what we're going to talk about is you know U.S. metro areas and that sort of thing. But the concept of geography I think is applicable anywhere in the world, no matter where you're working. All right. So that that should carry over just fine. And just remember that all the statistics and everything we're talking about is about the is about the United States. Okay. So all right, Jason, yes. let's let's do this. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, cyberseek.org is a wonderful website, as we said, but it is US focused. I have not found an equivalent for the UK or Canada mm -hmm. or India or other countries around the world or even a global one. I think it's just because it's hard to get that kind of data into a single place. And there's a lot of time and money spent by a lot that's, of organizations to create cyberseek. There, there's sponsors here, right? You got to find sponsors and you also have to have sources. I mean, it's, it's a big, you know, it's a big data challenge. I also want to say too that um, this data set is backward looking. So once uh, once you get ready to actually do job hunting, you have to go someplace else to do that. So just another caveat. Yeah, great point. And uh, as I'm looking at the screen, I'm at cyberseek.org, C-Y-B-E-R-S-E-E-K.org. If you're in the car on the podcast, please don't try to go do it right now. You can do it later. It <laughs> will be in the over. show notes. We'll have a link. <laughs> and we'll also have a link to the video if you want to go back and watch it later to get you know, in-depth deep dives and see exactly what I'm looking at. Uh, but on the main page, when you get there, there's really two big things you can do up front. One is the heat map and the other is the career pathway. We're going to save the career pathway for a different day. That's where you start talking about what jobs lead to which jobs inside of cybersecurity. If you want to be a pen tester, what are the three jobs you should have before that? And what jobs can you get after being a pen tester and things Excellent. like that? But today, we're really going to focus on the heat map. And when you click on that heat map, you're going to see a map of the United States pop up. Now, right at the top, it's going to show up in a color-coded map. And in that map, you're going to have different colors based on the total number of job openings in those areas. And that's why it's now, a heat map. That's why it's a heat map, exactly, right? And so the darker colors have more jobs and the lighter colors have less jobs. Right now, I'm looking at it and as I'm filming this, it is um, right towards the mid-time, mid-February, uh, late February timeframe. As the time this episode goes live, will probably be about the beginning of March. Um, and this is fairly relevant, but it has been affected by COVID, as we've said. In fact, at the top of the site, there's a big banner going across and it says, Please note the data on CyberSeek has recently been updated and a reflection of the United States job market, which has heavily been affected by COVID-19 pandemic is resulting here. Uh, they are seeing things like burning glasses projects, that cybersecurity jobs will be some of the key roles that are driving the post-pandemic job recovery over the mm -hmm. next five years. And they believe the current data reflects this short-term deviation from the longer-term trends, which means you may see that there are less jobs in a particular area because that area is suffering really bad from COVID and other places are not. And so there is some of these shifts that are happening that aren't normal in nature. And we'll talk about that as we go through here a little bit as well. Yeah, that's, now, that's, that's great. Go, keep going. Yeah, and, and the other thing I think that's really important to say is when you look at this total job number, um, total jobs is really not that important, in my opinion, as much as the uh, ratio is. Yeah. And why I say this is, you know, if I go to California, you'd expect they have a lot of jobs but they also have a lot of people. And so if there are a million jobs in California, but there's 2 million people fighting for those jobs, that wouldn't be a great place for us, right? Because that means there's two people for every one job. Um, now in the cybersecurity industry, that tends to not be the case. There's a lot more jobs than people, and we'll talk about that as well. Um, but what you're gonna see is that right off the bat, the first map you see is a state level map with color codes that show you exactly which states have the highest number of jobs. And there is another button that you can click on that's called Metro Areas. And when you do that, it's actually going to break it down into the counties because 
Just because California has a lot, or Texas has a lot, for instance, when I actually go into the metro area of Texas, I can see there's only about four or five counties that are actually heavily having jobs in Texas. Right. So if you're in western Texas, there's not really any jobs. But if you're in the Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston area, there's a lot of jobs. So you have to keep these localizations and markets in mm -hmm. mind as well, especially with larger states, places like Texas and Montana and you know Washington and California and Florida. Those are pretty big states. I've driven across uh, Florida, and it takes about you know eight hours to go from tip to tip from Pensacola to Miami, uh, and that's a long commute if you're getting a job in Miami and you live in Pensacola. You're not going to do that, right? So it does matter. Geography does matter here. Especially in the beginning, too, because, you know, we're really trying to focus in on, you know, uh, what is this what does this situation look like for the entry level person the so-called, you know, first cybersecurity job that you're that you're trying to get. And um, and this is really crucial because a lot of people believe and I think there's a lot of truth to this, that especially when you're starting out, it's so important to get the right mentoring. And and a lot of people think that the best mentoring happens when you're actually in the same room with the people that you're trying to learn from. Right. So there's other ways to do it. But but there's a strong preference for that. Yep, um, and then let's go ahead. I'm gonna go ahead and scroll down page just a little bit. I wanna talk about some key numbers before we start doing some deep dives. Now, when you first go to the page, it's gonna give you the national level information, which is a consolidated look across the entire country. And the first thing I see here is some really key numbers under the national level. And this is the total number of job openings for cybersecurity jobs in the United States. As of today, the total number of job openings on this site that they're showing is 597,767. So just shy of 600,000 jobs for nice easy math for those of us who are on the podcast audio only. Now, if you look at the total number of employed cybersecurity professionals in the workforce, it's just over a million people. It's 1,053,468 to be exact. So what does that tell me? That tells me there are a lot of job openings and there's not really that many people. Um, if we're looking at a, an industry where you have almost 50 or 60% of the workforce having those jobs available as well, that's a pretty high number. As you look to the next column, you're going to see the supply and demand ratio. Right now, the national average is 68%. This is the supply demand quotient. What this means is that there are a lot more jobs than there are people. In fact, if I took everybody who was fully qualified for the position and hired them today, we would still have three jobs out of every 10 jobs going unfilled because 32% of the jobs we just don't have people for. And this is what we're talking about, the cybersecurity skills gap. Now, I know this brings up the question, hey, I've got my cert, I've got my degree, I've got whatever, nobody will give me a chance, nobody will hire me, right? Um, but that is one of the problems that we see inside of this industry is that hiring managers and what they're looking at and what they think makes somebody fully and best qualified is not lining up with what they're seeing as the supply. Now, that could be because of location, it could be because of salary expectations, it could be because of certification levels they're asking. Sometimes I see people asking for an entry level job and they want five years experience and a CISSP. It's not really entry level at that point, right? Uh, and so you got to keep those things in mind as well. Kip, do you have anything to add to that? Well, you know, this just goes back to a previous episode that we recorded about how uh, entry level jobs are not really entry level, right? There's this, there's this common interpretation of what entry level means, which is like, you know, McDonald's, right? I can come in off the street or Uncle Sam will take you off the street and will train you up, you know, to the, then you have skills. Um, that's what most people, you know, think of when they hear the term entry level, but cybersecurity isn't like that. An entry level job in cybersecurity is typically, typically going to require some experience in a previous job. And the CyberSeek uh, website 
you know, shows that graphically um, in the in the career pathways section. And by the way, um, another thing to note is that in this part of the website that we're on, they are in those numbers that you were telling them, Jason, those numbers include uh, jobs such as systems administrator that have heavy cybersecurity uh, job responsibilities, such as setting permissions on file shares or uh, allocating uh, you know, user groups or users into groups, right, for, in order to grant access to resources. Um, and so, you know, we talk about the idea of a two-step uh, uh, you know, transition into cybersecurity for people who are outside the industry. And that's actually encapsulated really well in here. Uh, the whole website really takes that into account. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and then as we continue moving over on this dashboard, I want to point out that everything is clickable. So as you click on things, as you move your cursor around, it's highly interactive for your specific case. So I do recommend spend some time on this website and click around and play with it as well. The next column we're going to see here is called geographic concentration. And this is one of the ones I think is really, really important. I said earlier that the total number of jobs being really high in Texas really doesn't matter to me if there's a bunch of people in Texas that already can fill those jobs. But instead, this geographic uh, concentration is going to tell you what that supply demand ratio looks like in a particular area. Now, the national average is one. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean we have the right number of people? No. It means if we look across all states, we have to have a baseline somewhere of what is the mean, what is the average for everybody. And that's what we're looking at there with that one. But if I take my mouse and I start putting it and hovering it over, you'll see all of those locations actually listed going from the left side to the right side. Oh, actually, I'm still on the metro area. So let me go back and click on states here. I'm sorry about that. Uh, and when you go back there, now I can see that the national average is on the far left side of this, this chart. And going anything lower than the national average means there is less jobs for the amount of people that are there. And then if we go to the right side of the chart, we're going to see that there are more jobs for those people. So if you wanted to know really quick, where is the worst place to look for a cybersecurity job? Well, just put your cursor on the left side and you will see that right now it says, uh, it looks like it is Arkansas. Arkansas has a 0.8 quotient out of one, which means they are 80%, uh, which is about 20% lower than the national average. Now, if we go over to the far right and see who is the highest place in terms of jobs versus supply, or yeah, the amount of jobs for the amount of supply, who is the most in demand area, it is by far Washington, DC. Washington, DC has a quotient of 8.2 out of one. So they are really, really needing people in Washington, DC. Now, the weird thing is I've done a lot of looking at this site over the years, and I was working in the Washington, D.C. area for about seven years as well. And at the time I was working there, our quotient was usually around three to four. I was really surprised today when I loaded up the site and saw it was at 80.2. Now, why is it three times higher than it's been historically over the last two, three, four years? Kip, do you have any guesses? Um, you know, since, since it's Washington, D.C., I'm going to guess that it's related to federal government spending. And so my guess is, is that um, there's a lot more money available to spend on cybersecurity right now. I think that's probably a good guess. Um, I don't know the right answer, so I'm just making a hypothesis here as well. But I do know that under the current president, uh, there was a big fight whether government workers had to get vaccinated. And mm. it got held up that government workers had to be vaccinated. And so did mm. government contractors, right? And so a lot of people who refused to get the vaccine, they've hit the end of their time yeah. and they've been asked to leave. That's um, another reason. I, I think it's a, a confluence of, of both. Yeah, I think it's a yeah. confluence of both because yeah. uh, there's a there was a big uh, funding, uh, a big spending bill for uh, state and local 
governments to get uh, cybersecurity grants. And it's a big, it's a big amount of money. It's like a trillion dollars or something. And so I, I'll bet it's, uh, it's both of those things together. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that a couple of years ago, the uh, DOD asked for a lot of money to do more cyber defense and cyber warfare. Mm. And um, budget timelines on DOD is three to five years, and we're kind of getting into that three to five year window. So I think a lot of those jobs are coming in line as well. So I think a confluence of all these things are coming in, but when I look at the next highest place after DC, uh, the next highest place is Virginia at 4.5, mm -hmm. which is right in that same DC, Virginia metro area. And you go to the next one, I bet we're going to find, you know, Hawaii, another highly government area, mm -hmm. um, Colorado, Vermont, Rhode Island, and you can keep going through as you look at the different places. Um, so that's, that's a good way to look at things. Um, the other thing that I really like on this chart is you can go over to the right side and it shows you the top cybersecurity job titles. Now, one of the things we always tell people is you have to know what you're aiming at. You have to know what job you want. And if you're not sure yet and you're still doing the investigation because there are lots of different jobs out there, mm -hmm. one of the good things you can do is go here to CyberSeq. And even on the this side with the location side, I like to look at the top job titles. And right now I'm looking at it from a national level and I can see that the most in-demand top job is cybersecurity analyst. And this actually supports what I tell my students all the time. I have people who ask me, should I go for CYSA plus? Should I go for Pentest plus? Pentest plus sounds so cool. It's so sexy. I love the idea of being a hacker and all that stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, the problem is there are four to five times as many jobs for defenders as there are for attackers. And the numbers here show it, right? We can see on this chart, the top 10 they have is cybersecurity analyst, cybersecurity manager, cybersecurity consultant, software developer, systems engineer, network engineer. Those three don't even have cybersecurity in them. Those like Kip was talking about earlier, these are jobs that are cybersecurity adjacent. And a lot of times people will go into those to get into the field. And then we have penetration and vulnerability tester. And then we have systems administrator and cybersecurity specialist. And so really, you know, people are asking for cybersecurity analysts, lots and lots yep. of people want to fill up socks and they need these people. So uh, this is another thing you need to think about is what are the high level jobs that people are asking for and making sure you can then meet towards those needs. Um, the next thing I wanted to uh, point out is just here at the bottom, there's two more areas that are, that are interesting to look at. And the one on the left is going to be the NICE, the NICE framework, uh, which breaks things down into different categories such as oversee and governance, uh, protect and defend, analyze, operate and maintain. And as you look at these categories, you're going to see the total number of jobs. And so this tells you where is the bulk of jobs in cybersecurity. And the biggest category is operate and maintain. And so if you want to be somebody who is operating and maintaining, that is somebody like a cybersecurity analyst, a systems administrator, a network administrator, and things like that. Another big area is going to be oversee and govern. And that's your governance things. That's your management, your GRC. Um, and as you go down, you know, collect and operate, that's more intel. That's much smaller percentage. And as you keep going down the list, you'll see them smaller and smaller. And then on the right side, the last thing that they have is a thing on certifications. And I recommend everybody who is thinking about which certification to take next goes and looks at this area. Because this tells you based on the number of jobs and based on the number of people who have that certification. So if we look at certification holders, there are 177,000 people who have their Security Plus. If we look at CISSP, there's only 93,000 who have their CISSP inside of this data. Now, if we go over to our openings requesting certification, we can see that the number of jobs that are asking for certification, the number one certification they ask for is CISSP. 116,000 jobs with that title in it. Well, guess what? I just told you that over on certification holders, there's only 93,000 people who have it. So this goes to that skills gap, right? We have 20-something thousand more jobs available than people who are certified to take it. And a lot of the people who are certified to take it don't want to take that job. 
I have a CISSP. I'm not looking for a new job, right? And so that means there's a lot more opportunity when you start doing this. And so yeah. as you look at which certifications and which jobs are there, this can help you as well. But now we're going to go back to the idea of location because that's yeah. what I want to talk about. Okay, now I'm going to kind of give this overview. Go ahead, I got, one, I got one clarification for you. So you were talking about uh, we have this nice framework, and I want to make sure that people listening realize that it's not a pleasant framework. It's actually an acronym <laughs> called NICE, NICE, and that stands for the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, which was published by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And what that is, it's a way to categorize different cybersecurity jobs and, and cybersecurity adjacent jobs. So it's a taxonomy, right? It's just a way for us to organize all of this data. And so that's what Jason was uh, talking about. Yeah, and the whole goal there was to be able to say, if you're gonna do this job, it's this category. Mm -hmm. You should have these basic skills. And that way, if you're getting a job with company A or company B, it should look pretty much the same because before it was the Wild West. Yeah. All right, let's go back up here to our map. So when we go back up to the map, we have the interactive map and we have our color-coded hot map. And by default, as I said, the first thing they show you is total job openings. But I said that wasn't really the thing I love the most about this map because that's just a total number. Uh, and so instead, I like to go over to the left side and there's public sector data, private sector data, and then there's this drop down where it says total job openings. If I click on that, I can actually change that to the supply of workers, the supply demand ratio, or the location quotient. And so by going here and going, hey, show me the supply demand ratio, for instance, for those, those states, I can see exactly where those hotspots are. Now on a state level, I can see right now that some of the darkest areas, the most in-demand areas, are Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, and Massachusetts, it looks like. Those are the, the four darkest spots. But if you go to metro areas, it gives you a lot better and more usable information uh, because as a person, I'm not thinking about moving to Texas, I'm thinking about moving to Dallas, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so as you look at this, you can now see exactly where those spots are. And as I look at this map that I just put on with the metro areas, I can see really that there are basically five, six, maybe 10 counties that really have the highest supply demand ratio areas. And if you want to find out what those are, which that specific county is, you can just hover your mouse over it and click on it. For instance, I'm from Miami originally, so I'm going to go and click on Miami. It is showing me that it is a 0.68 ratio, which is pretty darn low. Uh, they need a lot of people. And if I click on it, it'll actually blow it up and show me a little bit more information. In Florida, I can see exactly what I'm looking for. And as you click on it, you can zoom in or zoom out. Now, in addition to that, you can also filter out metro areas by population. Maybe you know that your wife really likes to be in an area where there's great theater and there's entertainment and there's a you know big city vibe. She just does not want to live out in the sticks, right? In the country, in the rural area. Well, you could say, show me only the metro areas that are large um, or only the metro areas that are small if you only want to be in a rural, rural, rural area, for example, <laughs> right? And so when I say just show me large metro areas, there's only about 20 right now. And so I can really focus in on those areas. In addition to that, you can go ahead and click on that again and change it to your location quotient or your supply of workers or your total job openings as well. And as you do that, you're going to get those different things based on your state or your metro area that really helps you narrow down where do you want to work. Um, I know, you know, coming from the military and government and contracting world, um, I have a lot of friends that, you know, they do their 20 years in the military and now they're figuring out what do they want to do next. And when you hit that retirement date and they go, okay, what do you want to do next? You're like, well, I'll be a cybersecurity analyst. Great. Where do you want to work? Uh, I don't know. I'm used to living all over the world. So whoever wants to hire me? Well, that's too big of a job target to hit. You really got to start figuring out where it is you want to live. And doing that, and if you're picking where you're going to go, you should pick a place that has a lot of jobs for what you want to do. Yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, this is excellent uh, information, Jason. And, um, and without uh, sort of upending this whole idea that geography matters, you know, one thing that we've got to factor into this conversation too is that the last two plus years of operating in a pandemic with quarantines has really uh, changed the, the dynamic as far as uh, remote work. And there's a lot of places where uh, their strong preference is to be together in a, in a building or, in, or, or, you know, in a physical location, but they're unable to do that now. And so, um, so I think we should probably unpack a little bit, you know, what's it going to be like for somebody who uh, is searching for a remote job and doesn't want to relocate to a different ge geographic area and uses this heat map in order to find a job that says, you know, remote, uh, that this is a remote position. And let's say, you know, they're living in uh, Colorado and they snag one of these remote positions in Washington, D.C. Now, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, is that a good idea? What are the risks or, you know, what are you seeing? Yeah, so that's a great thing to talk about, right? Um, so I, I think, you know, we can talk a little bit more about remote versus not remote as well in general. Mm -hmm. And there are some places where you're going to have to go into the building. Uh, a lot of cybersecurity jobs, especially if you're doing clear jobs, you're going to have to go in the building because you don't have top secret information in your home office or secret information in your home office. Mm -hmm. So those jobs, you have to be in the building. You're not going to be able to work remote. But for a lot of companies, remote is an option, right? If you got hired by Kip's company, for instance, he's a fully remote company. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think some of the things you really need to think about when you're thinking about your career and long-term growth with a company, especially when you're going with a remote company, is are they remote only, are they remote preferred, or are they remote eligible, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. um, and so let me, let me break down those three categories, right? Remote only uh, is what Kip says he is, right? Everybody on his team is remote, nobody's coming into the office, and so that is the best environment if you want to be a remote person, have the best job opportunity for growth and promotion because everyone is on the same level playing field. Everyone's remote, and so everyone has the same opportunity to get the same FaceTime with the CEO and the decision makers, whether that's through Zoom or Skype or whatever it happens to be, but you're all in the same level playing field. So that's remote only. The second is more what my company is. We are a remote first company. Now what that means is that most of my employees are remote, but there are a couple of employees who work together on a daily basis, or at least are within a 20, 30 minute drive. For instance, uh, I'm located down in Puerto Rico and four of my team members, I can drive to their house within about an hour and we can go meet up for coffee or lunch and we can have meetings that way if we wanted to, even though we're not in the building. Now, the challenge with that is you have to figure out what that company culture is. Are they ability, do they actually value all remote employees equally? Um, just because somebody is working in Colorado, if everybody else is in the office in Washington, then guess what? you're going to be out of some of those meetings because a lot of those sidebar meetings that happen after the Zoom call is over, that's where a lot of the, uh, the money is made per, per, per se in terms of uh, social capital and making inroads for the next promotion. So that yeah. is a risk you're taking when you're going to a, uh, you know, a remote position where the company is kind of half and half. Yeah. Um, right now, and a lot of companies are in that situation where people are working from home because they kind of have to, but they'd really like them to come back to the office. And so if you took this job right now over the next two years, you might get promoted wonderfully because everybody's at home anyway. But in two years when everybody goes back to the office, you say, no, no, I'm gonna stay home. Somebody else might be getting that promotion, you might not. And then the third category is those companies who are kind of remote by exception or remote eligible. Um, I think about you know, the government, I think about you know, the military, I think about hospital chains and universities. They are designed as an in-person institution. 
And they may allow you to work from home one day a week, two days a week, maybe even a month or two at a time. But it's going to hurt you when it comes time for promotion because they're so used to seeing Joe in every meeting or Mary in every meeting that they're not thinking about somebody else who's at home because, yeah, you're getting your work product in on time, you're doing all your work, you're staying on budget, you're staying on task. You might be more productive than you've ever been before. And yet you're not going to get that social capital because people don't see you. They're not sharing a coffee with you on break. They're not going out to lunch with you. Those things do matter. And I know it's a bunch of political games, but honestly, I've seen it in my career too many times where the person who is the best worker is not the person who's getting promoted. It's the person who can communicate, the person with social skills, the person people like, they know, they trust. And whether or not that person really knows what they're doing or not, they are there and there sometimes matters. Yeah. Uh... You know, a lot of the dynamics in play here that you just reviewed, Jason, are longstanding dynamics, all right? In other words, the fact that we've got a pandemic that's going on right now that has forced a lot of workforces into a remote situation, um, it, it's really sort of caused uh, typical patterns of human behavior to become more pronounced and more pervasive and, and, you know, and, and all over the workforce. Whereas in the past, most companies, I think it's fair to say, were, uh, you know, they either didn't have remote work or remote was like, yeah, maybe one day a week or something like that, right? As more of a, more of a, like a flex kind of a thing, right? Almost a benefit. Um, but I just want to say that these, these, um, these factors that you've mentioned uh, have always been there. My, my first work from home opportunity was over 20 years ago. And I, I became very sensitized to this stuff very quickly. You know, the whole idea about being seen, having a, a face that goes with my name. And so um, I lived in Seattle. My, uh, my company was in San Francisco. I would fly to San Francisco once a month and I'd spend five days in the office. And that, that, was, my, that was predominantly my, my FaceTime. I didn't have an iPhone. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know? that, was, that was a way for you to be seen. And so people didn't forget about Kip. That's um, right. You know, and, and, and I'll tell you, I have had the same issue uh, in my career, even in the military, which is a predominantly in-person business, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in the military, I was working as a cybersecurity planner at one of my positions. And I was being flown all over the world to go to conferences, do planning, do incident responses, all that kind of stuff. I'm doing great work, more work than anybody else. I'm putting in 80, 100-hour weeks to get things done. And when it came time for them to figure out who's the number one person, who's the number two person, uh, as we're going down the 40 people in row, um, I ended up being you know, pretty high up, but I wasn't number one. And the answer I got was, well, you're never here. And I'm like, they're like, you're always in Hawaii. And I'm like, well, it's not like I'm on Hawaii on vacation, man. You're flying me out there on Sunday. I'm flying home on Saturday. And then you're turning me around the next day to go out again. My family's never seen me because I'm working hard for you. I'm doing all these great things. You love what I'm doing. Yeah, but you weren't here for all the meetings. You know, it, it, that's the kind of thing that you, sometimes you have to have, you have to realize. And, you know, had I realized that up front, I probably wouldn't have killed myself to the amount I did, uh, you know, trying to do everything that I was doing for them. Uh, but, you know, that's one of those things you just have to think about and you have to realize. And it does happen in a lot of organizations because you're just not there. And when you're and it's out of not, sight, sometimes you're out of mind. And it's not fair. I mean, I'll just tell you that right now. It's yeah. not fair in the sense that, you know, Jason and other people in his situation aren't being rewarded for the actual work that they're doing. That is, that is to say the outcomes that they're producing. So that's another thing you should be thinking about when you join a company that has a remote culture. You got to find out, like, do, do are employees measured based on what they produce, what they actually deliver? Or is it just a matter of, hey, I need a butt in a seat and I better see your butt in the seat. Otherwise, it doesn't count. 
that's a huge uh, culture uh, difference. And so if you don't know that going in, you, sh you need to figure it out fast. Yeah. And, and one other thing that I think is really important for you to realize is if you are new to this industry and you're trying to get your first job, um, I would recommend you take a job in person for your first job. I would not take a remote job. And the reason for that is it is really hard to get spun up, to learn, to figure out what you're doing and how you're doing it when you're sitting at home by yourself or trying to meet with somebody over Zoom. Um, there is something about being able to just sit next to somebody. And I will tell you this to you as somebody who's run his company as a remote only company for the last five years. I have a lot of employees that are all over the world. But now I have to start figuring out about time zones. I need to figure out, hey, this thing is happening. And you know, I'm like, you know, I really should call you know, Joni and show him how to do this. But you know what? It's 3 a.m. in Joni's time, so I'm not going to call him. I'll just take care of it. I'll tell him tomorrow. And then I forget to tell him tomorrow because the next fire is happening. And so these things happen. And if you want to work, uh, I'm working right now with a company down here in Puerto Rico. They're building a cybersecurity uh, operations center here in Puerto Rico that's going to be serving a bunch of clients back in the U.S. They are hiring people from the U.S. and from Puerto Rico, and they're hiring a lot of remote people. The problem is a lot of people they're trying to hire don't have the skill set and the experience to work effectively remote when they first show up. And so you have to think about that too. If you're that person who needs that training, you really want to have somebody who can just pull you up next to them and show them what to do. And a lot of those things, they're just, they're not planned meetings. Sometimes it's just happens, right? I get an email in, this shows that this incident is happening and I go, hey, Kip, you're sitting right next to me. Come over here and let me show you what's going on. That kind of thing happens all the time yeah. in the real world. And when you're remote, it's an extra step for me to call you up, tell you to get on Zoom, share my screen, and then start trying to work with you. Right. When I already wanted to start putting out that fire, and if you're next to me, I can just grab you. So, so if you that find kind your, of stuff happens. Yeah. So if you find yourself in that situation anyway, where you, it's your it's your first job, uh, and you're remote anyway, because that's just you know you find yourself in that situation. Here's one thing that you can do that will help. Uh, I know people who just open up a Zoom or a Teams link with somebody else that they're working on uh, remotely, and they just keep it open for hours. Or they'll keep it open for an hour, they'll take a break, and they'll come back, and then they'll open it up for another hour. And it's not designed for you to have an hour-long conversation. Rather, it's to simulate what it would be like to sit next to somebody or sit across from somebody and just be able to, to chat with them you know, when, whenever it makes sense. So you know, it's not the same, but uh, you know, it, it might work. Yep, and, and then the other thing when you're thinking about remote and uh, working different places, right? We had mentioned earlier, uh, if you're in Colorado and you want to take a job with somebody in DC because there's 8.2 quotient for DC right now, that's great. But guess what? They may still want you to work DC hours from 8 to 4 every day. And if you're in Colorado, that means you're waking up at 5 a.m. to be butt and mm -hmm. seat ready to go at 6 a.m. your time. Um, this happened to one of my recent hires, and we made it clear to her up front. Uh, hey, uh, we have a Monday morning staff meeting and everyone worldwide goes on our Monday, well, my Monday morning staff meeting, which is 9 a.m. my time. It's 8 a.m. in Florida. It's 6 a.m. in my central uh, time zone where my new hire is. I have somebody in India. I have somebody in the Philippines. So for them, it's 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. I've got somebody in uh, Italy. For them, it's 3 in the afternoon. And we all get on this call. Um, but I, I told him, like, unfortunately, you happen to live in a place that it's going to be the crappiest time for you because it's like, 5, 6 a.m. for you. Um, Kip, you joined us at one of our staff meetings and you woke up at what, four in the morning to yeah. be on the staff meeting with us at 5 yeah. a.m.? Um, you know, that kind of sucks if you had to do that every day. So keep that in mind as well. For me, Just I'm know a what you're going into. 
Yeah, so for me, I'm a late sleeper. So I have always liked to work for remotely for companies on the West Coast or in Hawaii, because I could sleep till eight, nine, 10 in the morning and then wake up and go to work their time. That works great for me. But if I was doing it the other way from California mm -hmm. to DC, forget it. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm, I'm up early in the morning anyway. So, yep. okay, well, listen, uh, Jason, we're coming to uh, the end of the amount of time that we have for this episode. So I just wanted to ask you, was there anything else on cyberseek.org or just the whole, this whole idea about geography matters? Yeah, I, I think you know the biggest thing is you want to figure out what kind of company you want to work for, right? Whether it's remote, whether it's in person, and then that is going to start driving where you're going to be looking for jobs. And again, geography matters just because of the sheer number of jobs and the amount of competition you have. Um, I had some students who say, hey, I've got my certifications, I've got my degree, I even have some experience and no one will hire me. And I look at where they're located and it's some small farm town in <laughs> Oklahoma, right? Uh, it's like, well, you might want to move for a year or two over to California, Texas, Florida, New York, Massachusetts, DC, get a job, get some more experience that's in that particular field that you want because yeah. maybe they had some help desk experience or system administrator experience, but they didn't have any cyber security experience. And people are more likely to hire you if you already are a known quantity. Kind of the traditional thing in the old days for remote was you proved yourself in the office and then they'd let you go home kind of as a reward. Um, it's again, that's all very different now with COVID, but keep that stuff in mind. If you're having trouble, it may be where you're living and where you're looking. Yeah. The other yeah. thing I will tell you, um, one of the things that employers sometimes will uh, be prejudiced against you when you're applying for a job is if you're not in their area. And what I mean by this is you're applying for a job in uh, DC and you're willing to move to DC for that job if you get it. But they see right now that your job, your, your address is Oklahoma, Kansas, California, whatever. And they're thinking, well, this person's going to have to put all this money into it. They're going to have to move. They're not ready to start right away. All those other problems. If you know that you're going to be moving to the X area, let's say Washington, D.C. area, because there's 8.2 quotient of jobs and you think you're going to get your best shot there. What I recommend is go on to a site like anytimemailbox.com or one of these other virtual mailboxes get a mailbox in that location or in the county right near it. Um, you can get it for about $10 a month. They'll pick up your mail for you, they'll scan it, and they'll put it in your online account so you can see it. And then list that job, uh, list that address as your address whenever mm -hmm. you're applying for a job. So if yeah. I'm applying for a DC, I should have a Virginia, Maryland, DC address. If not, you're hurting yourself. And for 10 bucks a lie. month, it's cheap insurance. <laughs> don't lie and tell them that you're already there, like, you know, <laughs> but if, if you get an interview. But this is just one of those ways that you just sort of, you know, avoid getting screened out too early in the process. Yep, definitely. Uh, that, that's all I have, Kip. Do you have any uh, any parting thoughts as well? <laughs> you know, I just, I hope that uh, people will find this this idea uh, will resonate with them and that they can go to cyberseek.org and they can start digging for themselves. You know, where are the opportunities for me? Am I one of those people that just lives in a place where there just isn't that much opportunity and I've been banging my head against the wall or whatever. So, um, Hey, you, you should tell us, can you put this information to work for you? And if you have, what has it done for you? How has it helped? We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, uh, and with that said, I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the uh, Your Cyber Path podcast. Uh, we love doing this for you. We hope it's valuable. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please take the time to leave a quick review for us over on iTunes. Uh, it really does help the show spread and let other people know about it. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, feel free to share it with your friends. If you're listening to it on the podcast, make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. And other than that, we will see you next time. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Your Cyber Path. Don't miss an episode. Press the subscribe button now.
If you would like to learn more about how to get your dream cybersecurity job, then be sure to visit yourcyberpath.com, where you can access the show notes, search the archive of our top tips and tricks, and discover some fantastic bonus content.